So this story, which has become a popular tradition, but certainly a profound truth, that there was no room for Joseph, Mary and Jesus at the inn, is not just a popular term. It's not just a, a jaunty story. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our virtual King's Meet service on the 19th of December, almost at Christmas. And wow, this year has flown by. Our speaker today is Dr. Gunning, and we will open with our first hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King.
our next hymn is at this time of giving gladly now we bring on that first christmas night joyful angels announced peace and goodwill to the world and heaven is still bursting at the seams with good gifts for everyone so open your heart to receive what god has stored up for you especially the greatest gift of all Let us pray. Father, we pray that this Christmas we focus on the real gifts we are given in your Son. Forgiveness, healing, and a chance to reconnect again with you. We ask that you remind us of the gifts of the Spirit you sent us, of peace, humility, patience, faithfulness, self-control, joy, goodness, kindness, and love. And we pray, Father, that the Christmas light brought to this world by your Son spreads through us, giving light, love, and healing to all who need to hear your message. We pray that we never lose the wonder and gratitude for your gift. And we remember that every day is Christmas, a chance to give and receive your gracious love. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Our next hymn is Love Came Down at Christmas, followed by the little drummer boy.
I've been thinking a lot about the gift we've been given on Christmas and the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. We live in a broken and damaged world, a world where we encounter broken and hurting people from the time we're born. The importance of God becoming man and, as Tim Mackey described it, becoming like us so that we might become like him. A man who loved and came to rescue and not condemn. A man who accepted and understood the brokenness in each heart. A man with gentle with a gentle compassion and forgiveness, allowing each person to be seen and accepted, freeing them from the burden of guilt and shame and allowing the release of a heavy load. When we're set free, we can set others free and the world heals a little more. To appreciate this freedom, we need to realize the pain and suffering in this world. And it made me think of this text by Dorothy Law Nolte, first published in 1954, a reminder of how we influence and either can lift or destroy each other with words. I pray, as we consider the implications of these words, which are applicable to both children and adults, that we learn to become more Christ-like each day, lifting and caring for each other, allowing the invisible and hurting to hear the great news of freedom and healing that Christ brought to the world. This Christmas, may we focus on the more intangible and valuable gifts of kindness, compassion and forgiveness, striving each day to bring a little more light to the world and to take the light brought to the world that first Christmas and continue to light other lights with it and to bring hope and light in a dark and hurting world. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with ridicule, he learns to be shy. If a child lives with shame, he learns to feel guilty. If a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. If a child lives with encouragement, he learns confidence. If a child lives with praise, he learns to appreciate. If a child lives with fairness, he learns justice. If a child lives with security, he learns to have faith. If a child lives with approval, he learns to like himself. If a child lives with acceptance and friendship, he learns to find love in the world. Children.
Good morning to you all at Kingsmead Chapel. Warm greetings to you from Baptist Bible Church and blessings to you all for the Christmas season and for a happy and blessed new year. This morning I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2. And we're going to read in that Gospel about the journey of Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, about the birth of Jesus uh, in or near Bethlehem, about the appearance of the angels to the shepherds in the fields at night, and about the visitation of those shepherds to Jesus and the consequences of uh, that visit. Now when we read and study nativity stories, when we read about the Christmas story, we need to do so with two views. The first, that of profound joy and thankfulness in our hearts for the coming to earth of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who humbled himself to be born of woman and to live amongst men, to suffer and die and then be resurrected to save us from our sins. So we read it with joyful thanks for the happenings that did take place at that time. But we also need to be looking at it prophetically. We need to understand that <clears throat> typologically the same circumstances in the world which surrounded Jesus' first coming are gathering again and will surround and attend his second coming. And most importantly, that there is going to be his second coming. In other words, Christmas is coming again. And the question we must ask ourselves, all of us, each and every one of us, are we ready for that second coming? So let's try and learn from this reading today about the wonder and <clears throat> eternal joyful hope of that time and what it means for the soon-to-take-place future. So turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1. And before doing so, we'll commit this reading to our Lord and Savior in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you at all times, but perhaps especially at this Christmas time, that you came to earth that you humbled yourself, that you were born of woman, so that you could minister to us, so that you could suffer and die for us, so that you could redeem us of our sins, sins from which we could not and cannot redeem ourselves. We thank you for this indescribable act of love. And we pray this morning that our attendance upon your precious word would do honour to your eternal name and bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we read that 
And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, whenever you see that, the numbering of heads, that is a powerful typological prophetic word about the coming of Antichrist. All of the Roman Caesars in some way foretold about Antichrist and the system of the Roman emperor foretold about Antichrist. But Caesar Augustus, the name given to Octavian, Julius Caesar's nephew, who succeeded the murdered Julius Caesar as Roman emperor. Caesar Augustus, the name given to him by the Senate and with the approval of the people, means saviour. Obviously, this means that Octavian was a false saviour and imperial ruler of the entire known world whose rule was enforced by military power, whose <clears throat> laws decreed the running of all financial uh, institutions and to whom all the conquered people had to bow under pain of death. Antichrist means false messiah, false saviour, amongst other meanings. So when we read about a false saviour, Caesar Augustus, in the Bible, it means that those passages in the Bible are teaching us about the time of the Antichrist to come. So just like there was a Caesar Augustus at the time of Christ's first coming, who numbered the heads of all the known world, so there will be an Antichrist, another false Messiah, ruling at the time of Jesus' second coming, and he too will number heads. So we read in verse 2, This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now the names of these two towns Nazareth and Bethlehem are also very important here. Nazareth comes from a Hebrew root word, Netzer, meaning branch. And one of the Messiah's names and titles, prophetic titles, in the Old Testament, in the prophecies, is the branch of Jesse. He was both the root and the branch of Jesse. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means house of bread. But its full name was Bethlehem Ephrata, Bethlehem Ephrata, which means house of bread, 
which gives rise to fruitfulness. So Jesus's surrogate parents went from a town called Branch, Messianic name, to the city of David, the house of bread, which leads to fruitfulness. All these names have powerful prophetic messianic meaning. Verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now we need to take careful note of these verses. She brought forth her firstborn son. Jesus was the firstborn of Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, the firstborn of Mary. Jesus had brothers who were born later of Mary, but Jesus was her firstborn. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. I want you to just take note of that. We're going to refer to it again very soon. But that's very important. Swaddling clothes. And laid him in a manger because there was no room at the inn. In the end times, there will be no room for those who follow Jesus in the institutions of the world. We will be outcasts from the institutionalized world, which is ruled and governed by Antichrist. So this story, which has become a popular tradition, but certainly a profound truth, that there was no room for Joseph, Mary and Jesus at the inn, is not just a popular term. It's not just a, a jaunty story. It has profound end times meaning. As the world grows more and more evil, as the approach of Antichrist uh, nears, so there will be less and less room in that world to accommodate true followers of Jesus. And when Antichrist himself comes, there will be no room at the inn. We will be outcasts. So we read on. Now there were in the same country, in other words, in the region of Bethlehem. Now the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has put that there for a specific reason. They were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields. Why does it talk about this same country? The shepherds who herded flocks in the uh, region of Bethlehem were Levitical shepherds. These were special shepherds. And their flocks were Levitical flocks. And the firstborn of those flocks were wrapped in swaddling clothes to protect them 
from harm, from injury, and to nurse them with special care, so that they would be unblemished, they would be physically perfect when came the time for mainly Passover, but also other sacrificial uh, temple meetings. Those firstborn lambs were born, bred, cared for, swaddling clothed for sacrifice. From their birth, they were prepared for sacrificial death. So just like Jesus was wrapped by his mother in swaddling clothes, so these firstborn lambs of these Levitical uh, flocks of sheep were wrapped in swaddling clothes by the Levitical shepherds out in the fields in the region of Bethlehem in preparation for sacrificial death at the temple and mainly at Passover. Where were they placed in these swaddling clothes? They were placed in a manger. Now we're going to come to that in a, in a second. Now, shepherds. The Hebrew and Greek words for shepherd are the same as the Hebrew and Greek words for pastor. When we read in the Bible about shepherds, we learn from those reading what God is teaching about the shepherding of his people. Shepherds who shepherd flocks are pictures of pastors and elders who are to shepherd people. Now these shepherds were living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. These were good shepherds. They were living out in the fields. They were amongst their flock. They were living with their flock. They were out in the fields with their flock. And they were watching over the sheep in the flock by night. They did not say to themselves, oh, it's night time now. We'll go home. We'll get uh, a, uh, a comfortable meal. We'll sleep in a comfortable bed. We'll be nice and warm. And we'll come back in the morning and pick up our job again in the morning. No. When it was night time, they stayed with their flock. They lived out in the fields with their flocks. Fields in the Bible refer to the, the living places, the, the places where people roam and exist. Jesus said the fields are white for harvest. Also, these shepherds were living in the fields. The Bible makes a clear distinction between living 
and dying. Living refers to eternal life. Dying and death uh, refers to judgment and damnation. So the story of these shepherds who were living out in the fields teaches about what good shepherds, good pastors, good elders should be in these end times. Good elders, good pastors, good shepherds are those who are following the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, are shepherding according to his eternal example. They therefore are saved. They therefore uh, have been <clears throat> promised eternal life. They are living. And they are living with their flocks and they are watching over them by night. Now, why needed these shepherds about whom we're reading now to be particularly careful at night? Two major dangers threatened their flocks of sheep. These dangers were present day and night, but particularly so at night. And the dangers were predators who would attack, hurt, maim or kill, and thieves who would steal sheep from the Levitical flocks to incorporate them in their own flocks elsewhere. Typologically, this refers to pastors and elders watching over their flocks by night to protect them from the attacks of Satan and his servants who would spiritually harm them, maim them, or even cause spiritual death, and those who would seek to steal them from a faithful walk with Jesus and deceive and lure them into the following of false doctrines in false churches and false religions and faiths. And the time of watching over the flock had to be most earnest and most vigilant at night. These shepherds didn't go to sleep at night. They stayed awake and were more vigilant than before. The night in the Bible is the commonest metaphor for the tribulation. The tribulation refers to the persecution of believers in Jesus and of the Jewish nation, which gathers swell as the end times move towards the coming of Antichrist and then reach unheard of summits and peaks and levels during the actual rule of Antichrist. So as things get worse, as things get tougher, as the world grows more evil, as the attacks of Satan grow more violent, as deception becomes more alluring, so these shepherds become more watchful, more active, and more caring of their flocks. That is a good shepherd. That is a good pastor. That is a good elder. And they are among their flocks. They're not locked away in some office 
and you need to make an appointment three weeks in advance to see them. They are among their flocks. They are in contact with their flocks. They are not surrounded by groups of sycophants and the members of the flocks can't get to them. They are one with their sheep. So these were these Levitical shepherds who were in the fields and they would wrap the firstborn lambs in swaddling clothes and put them in a manger. And those firstborn lambs would be cared for and nursed for sacrificial death. Just like the Lamb of God who was cared for and nursed by Mary in the preceding verses. Now verse 9, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Every time the glory of the Lord appears in visible form to men and women in the Bible, they are initially greatly af afraid. This glory of the Lord term refers to the power of God, the Holy Spirit manifest in light and power. And the initial response is always reverent fear. And on every occasion, the people or person to whom the glory of the Lord is so revealed and who is initially overcome by reverent fear, cannot say or do anything until the Lord Jesus or the messenger he has sent speaks the words of God to the witnesses of that power. So the glory of the Lord shone all around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. The very first words that are incorporated in the gospel of salvation are, do not be afraid. That is how the gospel begins. All the fear which man has, which is Satan originated, which is the result of bondage to Satan and sin and death, all that fear is immediately banished when the gospel is brought to a human being. So the first words are always, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. So these gospel tidings were brought to the shepherds. They were tidings of great joy. They were about to be told to the shepherds, but the angel makes the point that the same gospel is for all people. So a good shepherd one who has heard the joy of the gospel is absolutely bound under the calling of Jesus to make known that gospel 
to all people with whom that person comes in contact <coughs> during his or her life. So they are about to be told this great tiding of joy, but they are told that it is for all peoples. The gospel must be spread. It's not just for them. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, Beit Lechem Ephrata, the house of bread from which fruit is born. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. So this great tiding of joy, what is it? What, what are these tidings of joy? Is it monetary prosperity? Is it freedom from all illnesses? Is it freedom from all trouble? Is it the end of your worldly worries? Is it uh, of, um, power and wealth? No. What is it? It is salvation from sin. That is the sole message. Salvation from sin. That is the good tidings of great joy. That is all that we need to hear from our Lord and Savior. That he has saved us from our sin. We shouldn't need or want anything further than that. And to us is born this Savior. Jesus came to earth as a gift to us. He gave himself to us. The salvation from sin comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. What a gift. Now notice the angel tells the shepherds three things about this person who is born in the city of David. He is a saviour, saving us from our sins. He is Christ, Messiah. He is the Holy One of Israel, prophesied about in the scriptures. So he is the Messiah who was to come. And he is the Lord, meaning he is God. So he is born of woman as a baby in the city of David, but he is the Savior who saves us from our sin. He is the Messiah spoken about of old, and he is the one true God, the Lord, Adonai. That term was only used for Yahweh, for the one true God. If we turn quickly to Isaiah chapter 9 and read from verse 6, we'll read a little bit more about this concept. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For unto us, unto us, a gift from God, but the gift is God himself. He gives himself. So the gift is from God and is God. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now those names, Wonderful Counselor, Pele Yoetz, Mighty God, El Gabor, Everlasting Father, Aviad, Prince of Peace, <coughs> Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. Those are very specific Hebrew terms, Hebrew names, which were only used to praise and to glorify Yahweh, the one true God. They were never ever used to address a human being or an angel. They were only used for God. From his very conception and birth and throughout every moment of his life on earth, Jesus was fully God and fully man. That must never be forgotten. Fully God and fully man. So we go back to Luke chapter 2. He's our Savior. He is the Messiah who was promised. He is the Lord. He is God. And the angel says to the shepherds in verse 12, And this will be a sign to you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, why should that be a sign? Well, this is the reason. The story that Mary and Joseph, no room being found at the inn, were sent outside to a barn and that Jesus was born and put in a manger in a barn is completely and utterly wrong. These Levitical shepherds who wrapped in swaddling clothes the firstborn male lambs of their flocks, their Levitical flocks, took those swaddling clothed firstborn male lambs to a manger. They took them to only one manger, which was in a cave outside Bethlehem. It wasn't a barn, it was a cave. It, that was where Jesus was born. That, that was where Mary and Joseph went for Mary to give birth. That was where Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes and she put him in the same manger which the Levitical shepherds used to place the firstborn male lambs also wrapped in swaddling clothes who had been born from their Levitical flocks. So the shepherds knew exactly what and where the angel was referring to when he said, the sign is that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. They knew exactly where to go and they knew exactly what it meant that this babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes and was lying in that manger. 
It meant that that babe was being prepared for sacrifice at Passover for the redemption of sin. Just like their Levitical lambs were prepared for sacrifice at Passover for the partial and very temporary redemption of some sins. But this Lamb of God, who was fully man and fully God, was being prepared for a Passover sacrifice for the eternal redemption of all sin, of anyone who would turn to him in repentance and faith and worship him as Lord and Savior. That's why the angel said to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you, because only those Levitical shepherds would understand that sign. A babe wrapped in swaddling clothes like their Levitical firstborn male lambs wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the same manger in which those same lambs lay in the first days of their lives. Now we read on, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Glory, glory to God and peace on earth go together. If we want peace on earth, we should glorify God. The minute we glorify man and mock and reject God, there's no peace on earth. Peace on earth is absolutely, inextricably linked to glorifying God. We read on, verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven. So these angels had come from eternity, from the throne of the one true God in heaven, to earth in creation. Only Jesus, only the one true God, only Father, Son and Holy Spirit, can traverse from eternity to the earth or those whom they send. Those who do traverse from eternity to earth only do so under the permission and power of the one true God. And of course, God himself can and does do the same. But once again, it shows that there is this link, there is this connection between heaven and earth, and the connection is the one true God and those who follow him. So when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem, the house of bread from which comes fruit, and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. 
You see, when a person hears the gospel, that's wonderful. That's a, a blessed beginning. But it can't just stop there with a head knowledge of the gospel. That has to lead to a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ by the individual. The individual who accepts the truth of the gospel in order now to be saved by that gospel has to have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is bowing the knee before him, acknowledging and believing in his existence, his lordship, his sovereignty, his mercy and his love, praying to him in repentance and in faith, and then having received the Holy Spirit, walking with him daily in a personal faith-based relationship, empowered and cemented by the Holy Spirit for the rest of one's life here on earth, leading to eternal life with the one true God in heaven. So the hearing of the gospel is a wonderful, wonderful beginning, but it cannot stop there. It must proceed on to a personal encounter with Jesus. And it must happen now. There is no time to wait. Oh, well, I heard the gospel a few weeks ago and I'm thinking about it and uh, I think it might be true. Now is the time. The shepherds went immediately. And in verse 16, we read that they came with haste. They hurried. There was no time to be lost. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger, just as the angel had told them. So the sign of a loving, living, fully man, fully God, Savior, who was also a sacrificial lamb, was there. The truth from God through the angels was unassailable, was perfect, and was demonstrated in absolute perfection by what they saw. Not one dot or jot of what they had been told was in any way wrong. The truth was absolute. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. Notice when they had seen him, not Mary, not Joseph, when they had seen Jesus, they then made widely known. When he or she who hears the gospel then has his or her first personal encounter with Jesus and starts a lifelong and eternal personal relationship with Jesus, based on faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit, then the person is empowered by the Holy Spirit and filled with joy by the filling of the Holy Spirit to tell all about their experience with their loving Savior. And this is what the shepherds did. 
Then they made known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. When our encounter with Jesus proves to us the unassailable, unalterable truth of the Bible, of the gospel, about which we have read or which we have heard or which has been preached to us, and we then give others that same gospel in an unadulterated, uncompromising way. We don't try and alter the truth to make it sound more acceptable in inverted commas. But we tell others the true gospel that we heard and we tell others about our personal walk with Jesus. They will marvel at what they hear. If we try to water it down and make it more worldly friendly, they will not marvel. They will mock and they will reject. So we must adhere to the full truth of the gospel and they will marvel. They might not accept it. They might not turn to him as Lord and Savior, but they will still marvel at the wonder of it. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, why does the Bible tell us that? In the Bible, good women are pictures of faithful churches and of faithful Israel. So Mary here is a picture of the faithful church. The faithful church, churches who follow Jesus faithfully, day by day, they ponder the truths of the Bible. They meditate on the Word of God. They debate, talk, share, preach, teach, admonish all these wonderful eternal truths which the Lord has given to us in the power of His Holy Spirit in their hearts, in their minds, and they keep them as treasures in their hearts and in their minds. So the way Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart, a true church will treasure and keep these things and ponder them in its heart, its hearts as well. That doesn't mean it keeps it all to, to itself doesn't mean that we keep these truths to ourselves. doesn't mean that we don't go out and preach the gospel. Of course, it doesn't mean that. But it means that we are constantly thinking on, praying on, praying about, uh, discussing, teaching, sharing these wonderful, wonderful truths that have been given us in the gospel of Jesus. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them.
Now, as we said earlier, these Christmas <clears throat> stories, which of course are not stories, they are absolute truths, every word of what we've just read happened exactly as the Word of God relates it. But these um, accounts of what happened at the first Christmas teach us about what is going to happen again at the second Christmas when Jesus comes again. We've also just heard that the night is the Bible's commonest metaphor for tribulation. There is a false teaching that circulates much of the popular church, that the church, that believers, that Christians will not go through tribulation and will not go through the tribulation. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33. John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. And this Hebrew word for peace is the word we all know so well, shalom which comes from the Hebrew root word, leshalem, which means to be filled up. And shalom means to be filled up with Jesus, to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It does not mean worldly peace. It means the peace of Jesus, which has absolutely nothing to do with the peace that the world pretends to offer. So these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Jesus says it will happen. You will have trouble. You will have persecution. You will have trials. You will have difficulties. You will have griefs. You will have traumas. But be of good courage, he says. I have overcome the world. Good shepherds who are shepherding their flocks in tribulation should be reminding their flocks of that wonderful truth. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, have overcome the world. But we are going to have tribulation. Now turn to Matthew chapter 24. Verse 9, Matthew 24 is also called the Olivet Discourse and it is Matthew's account of Jesus' teaching to the apostles on the Mount of Olives, took place on the Mount of Olives, of what uh, the world would be like, what would be happening just before and leading up to his second coming. And he says in verse 9, then they, he's referring to the persecutors of the faithful, will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Turn over the page to verse 21. Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. There's coming a time of travail unprecedented by the entire span of human history. No war, no disaster, no dark epoch in human history will compare with the tribulation that's coming. Once again, good shepherds will take great care to shepherd, guard, and watch over their flocks during these tribulations. Good shepherds will not run and hide and look after themselves at the expense of their flocks. They will lay down their lives to protect their flocks during these times of tribulation during the night, protect them from predators who would harm and kill and from thieves who would steal them away. So we read again, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So there will be elect around at the time of this great tribulation. The concept that we believers will be uh, joyfully raptured out of the world as soon as things get a little bit tough and then the world can just get on with its own problems is utterly wrong. The faithful church most certainly goes through a large part of the Great Tribulation. There is a very special teaching about the Great Tribulation with respect to the Jewish people. That's a slightly different but related subject. But the church is not spared the Great Tribulation and it does go through a great part of it. There is also a big difference between the words tribulation, Greek word tselipsis, tselipsis, through which believers and through which the church do go and which believers and the church will suffer to a certain extent anyway. So there's a big difference between tribulation, tselipsis and God's wrath which is a different Greek word, orge, and for God's wrath, we are not destined. From God's wrath, true believers are absolutely spared. And God's wrath is restricted to those who unrepentedly reject him, rebel against him, curse his name, and follow Antichrist. God's wrath on 
the rebellious world makes the tribulation look mild. But we will be spared the wrath. But we will go through uh, at least a big part of the tribulation. And in that tribulational time, good shepherds will shepherd their flocks. They will not turn and run. Those are what the false shepherds and the hirelings do. Now look at Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, these are the end times, the sun, and moon, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, now look at this. Remember, we've just read on the night that Jesus was born, the angel said there would be a sign for the shepherds to find. Look at this, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So at the first coming, the shepherds were told about a sign and then they went to see and they saw Jesus. At the second coming, all mankind will see the sign and those who are not faithful to Jesus will mourn and bow in terror. But then they will all see Jesus coming in power and glory. No longer wrapped in swaddling clothes, no longer prepared for a humble and sacrificial death, but coming as a conquering king to restore justice and truth. But you see how the first story, the sign, and then the seeing him are recapitulated here. The sign and then the seeing him. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. The angels appeared before the shepherds. These angels will gather together his elect, his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. So just like the angels brought the gospel and the message of eternal hope, to the shepherds in the field by night. So these angels will gather the true shepherds after the night, after the tribulation, to share in the glory of Jesus. So the first story, wonderful and joyful and amazing as it is in itself, and that must never ever be lost, the story of Christmas must always retain its own special wonder. It also teaches about the Christmas to come. So the point is, are we ready for this second coming? Are we going to be among the elect for whom the days of destruction and tribulation were cut short or are going to be cut short? Are we going to be among the elect who are gathered by the angels 
to join in the glory of Jesus when he comes to take up his millennial throne? Are we ready for his coming? Let us as a church, let us as a body of Christ, be ready, get ready, remain ready on a daily basis. Repentance, prayer, uh, praise, worship, studying the word, and most importantly, spreading the gospel in word and in deed. Let's bow on a word of closing prayer. Our Lord and Saviour, we thank you for this sure hope that you are coming again. We thank you that the message of Christmas reinforces the surety of that hope that your second coming is soon and that your redemption of those who call upon your name is very proximate. Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful, keep us watchful, keep us caring and watchful of each other, keep us <clears throat> loving of each other, and in your strength, in your power, in your love and in your mercy, and in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would send us out to spread the tidings of great joy, the gospel of Jesus, to the world without. And we ask this all unto the glory of your precious name, Lord Jesus Christ, Saviour, Christ and Lord. Amen. Thank you all. Once again, we wish you a blessed Christmas and a wonderful, blessed 2022. God bless.